looking at the second half of uh, chapter 4 in Romans. And if you're familiar um, with Paul, which I'm sure most of you are, uh, he is not quick to make his point. So he will explain and then kind of re-explain and further explain. And so as we look at the second half, we're going to be hearing a lot of similarities of what we've heard over the last couple of weeks. Um, now, I was going to say it's almost, it's all, you know, it's, it's a very similar sermon to last week, but most of you guys were camping, so you, it's not going to be a repeat for you. <laughs> so, um, but it is, it is this idea where Paul is just, he's, he's continuing to explain and continuing to further delve into this idea that we have been justified by our faith. Um, it's not from works. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, then you know, like, uh, you might be thinking, well, like, I wish we could just kind of move on, right? I've heard, we've heard this, we've heard it week after week, and the problem is, um, when we think, well, I, I understand the temptation to think that, right? I thought it too. When I got into the text, I was thinking, man, this is kind of the same stuff, right? It's, it's the same ideas, there's a, there's a few new things, but there's this same underlying tone of justification through faith. And I remember thinking early in the week, like, all right, Paul, like, I get it. Can we just, can we, can we do something else? Can we move on? Is there a new idea? And then the Lord was just really strongly, like, convicted me on that. And just like, yeah, but you don't get it, do you? I mean, you, you get it here, but, like, every day you live as if you don't remember that that is true. Um, every day I still think that sometimes me doing good means that God owes me something. Sometimes I think on a regular basis, right, at least once a week, I think this hardship that I'm facing, God, I deserve better than this. Um, and, and so I, no matter how hard I fight it, this works-based sort of me earning something always just sort of creeps back in because that's what the world teaches. It's what every other religion on the planet teaches. And so if you're here this morning and you've been here, just know that it's a blessing from the Lord that we're going to be reminded again and again because that's what we need. We need to be reminded week after week, day after day, that our justification comes by faith. Not by us, not by our good deeds, not by anything we've ever done, but by God and his kindness, and he has given it to us. And so it comes through faith. Now, we read 13, 14, and 15 last week, but I didn't actually ever get to it. And I intended to, but we didn't. And so that's why we read it again this week, because there are some things in these couple of verses that I think are important. And the first one, so here, here's what's really interesting. I was talking to Jennifer about this. Like, uh, Paul belabors this point of justification by faith to the point where we do read 3 and 4, and we think, okay, I, I'm, I'm understanding it. But then he gives us statements, like we see in verse 13, doesn't expound upon them at all, and it's like earth-shattering that he would say this. Look at verse 13 with me. The promise of Abraham and his offsprings that he would be heir of the world. Now, what does it mean to be an heir? Father or a parent passes away. The heir of their estate is usually, most of the time, it's their children. Right? Not a stranger, not somebody outside of the family. And so what Paul is telling us here, the, the promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world has been given to us as well. This is a massive truth and a kindness from our Lord that he is not just saying to us, yeah, I'm going to give you the title of son or daughter, of, but it doesn't really mean anything. 
I mean, can you imagine if you adopt a child into your home and you tell them, hey, you're now a part of our family, you are one of my children, but I'm not going to actually let you take my last name. And, you know, my other kids, when they turn 16, like, I'm going to buy them a car, but you, not you. Like, you're going to have to work for it. You, you're different. Like, doesn't matter if we tell the person, hey, you're now a part of our family, if you don't treat them as if they are a part of your family, right? And so God is not just telling us, hey, you have become a Christian, and so now you are a member of the family, you're part of the kingdom, you're a son or daughter. But he says, you get to reign alongside Jesus Christ. You are an heir in the same way that the Son of God is an heir. How many of you feel like you deserve that? Good. No hands. That's great, right? The, that is unspeakable. That is unbelievable that we would read that God would actually take us into his household. Not just give us the title, but treat us as if we are a son or a daughter. It's unbelievable. And Paul just kind of scoots right past it, right? You are an heir of the world. What an unbelievable truth. And then he says this statement here in verse 15, another thing that I don't think we can just read past without exploring a little bit. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Have you ever read this and thought, man, why are we, why are we going to the parts of the world that don't have God's law? If they don't have the law, there is no transgression. Like, are they even being counted? Like, is their sin even being counted? And we read this and we think, hmm, maybe we should just leave them be, right? Maybe we should just let them alone. They don't have God's word. They don't have God's law. If there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's leave them alone. And that's why it's so important to take a book and to read it in its entirety, right? Because here's what... If you didn't know what Paul is doing in the book of Romans, he is building an argument, right? He is laying layer after layer after layer. And so if all we did was read this, we might be tempted to think something like that. But if we remember back to the foundational layer that Paul laid for us in chapter 1, does anybody have an excuse? Everyone knows the law. If they've never read it, it's been written on their hearts. Everyone knows it. Whether it's, a, whether it's a, a tribe that's never interacted with the outside world, they know better than to murder people. They know better than to commit adultery, right? They know it in their heart. Now, whether they're doing it or not is a different story, but we all know God's rules and God's laws, and they have been written on our hearts. We all recognize this, and we all recognize our need for God, and we recognize that we have sin that's in our life. And so we are the ones who are seeking out for the Lord, right? This initial recognition that we are sinful, that we need God, that we need his forgiveness. Without that, we would not be a Christian. And so we recognize that the world needs the same thing. Because here's the thing. God, people know God's law. It's written on their hearts. But it's not always intuitive about how to fix that problem. You see, we all know it's there. We all know that we don't follow it. What do we do about that? And that's what Paul is telling us. This justification, it's by faith. And so Paul makes this argument in the rest of chapter 4. He is telling us, right, that the promises are for everyone who has faith. 
The promises that he gives to Abraham are the same promises that he has given to us that we receive when we have faith. Martin Luther wrote probably his most important, um, his most influential work called The Bondage of the Will. This was written in an argument against this guy named Erasmus. Erasmus said that our salvation is by grace alone. And so Martin Luther, in response to that, says, no, that's not right. right? The Bible tells us that salvation is by faith alone. And you might be thinking, ah, you know, what's, the, what's the big deal? That seems like semantics, right? Grace alone, faith alone, like, man, who cares? Like, what does it matter? I mean, it actually matters a great deal, Right? Because if these, uh, if these ideas are out of order, it causes a massive amount of confusion. So Paul tells us here very clearly that our salvation is by faith alone and that it rests on grace. Making sure these two words are in their proper place, these ideas are in their proper place, is really important. Because see, if Erasmus had been correct, if salvation is by grace alone, where does grace come from? It comes from God exclusively. It requires no belief on the part of the sinner. It's just God is giving grace. And so anybody who is not saved means that God didn't give them grace. Now, if salvation comes by faith alone, which is what Martin Luther argues, which is what the Bible argues, then there is responsibility that is laid upon us, right? That we have to rely on, that we have to build up this faith that God has given us. Now, those who wrestle with the ideas of predestination may say, well, God grants faith too, so really, is there a difference? And just like I said last week, I don't think that we have an answer in the Bible that is clear as day about all of the inner workings of how salvation works. Faith is required for justification. We would never seek that faith out on our own, right? That's part of what Paul is arguing. No one does good. No one seeks after God. No one has faith in and of themselves. But we don't understand how it works. Does God grant faith to everyone and some believe it and some reject it? Does he only grant faith to... Paul doesn't answer that question, right? I'm not going to try and answer it. The Bible doesn't try and answer it. So I'm not going to try and stand here and answer it. I, I mentioned last week, there's hints, right? And if you guys allow me to stay long enough, there are hints in Romans 9 that we will get to one day we'll talk about this. But the idea is, is that if we mix these two things up, then I think there is no question. If we believe the opposite, right? If we believe this argument that it's on grace alone, then it is all God. There is no faith. There is no responsibility on our part. And here's the more important thing. Think about your salvation um, resting on your faith. How strong is your faith on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis? Eh, right? A little shaky sometimes. <laughs> little. If your salvation is based on you and your faith and the strength of your faith, you're in a lot of trouble. And so am I, right? If it was based on my faith, I would be in a lot of trouble. And that's why it's really important to understand. We're not just, these words are not just interchangeable. You know, ah, who cares? What does it matter? It matters because salvation, justification comes by us believing in God and it rests on grace. And that comes from God. Your salvation is secure because God has it. Not because you're maintaining it every single day. 
but God has it. It rests on his grace. So later today, when you do something or say something or your faith falters and you sin, probably before you get home, right? That this is what happens. We are sinful, broken people. Your salvation does not rest on your ability to follow God's law perfectly, on your faith being perfect all the time, but it rests on God's grace. It's really important, right? It's a really important phrase. It's really important that we don't mix up these words or we don't mix up these terminologies. Because if we do, it turns everything upside down. Now, what was his faith in? This is another important question. Because in my experience, and probably in yours as well, people think or have been taught or somewhere along the way gathered this idea that our faith sometimes needs to be in crazy, illogical, unintelligent things. You just shut your eyes, jump off, and just hope that Christ is going to catch you on the other end. That's what faith looks like. That's not what faith looks like. It's not what faith looks like in the Bible anywhere that I've ever seen. Now, there are times when God tells people to do illogical things and they do it. Why? Because God is the one who told them. So Paul is using Abraham as an example throughout this chapter and throughout a lot of his writings. Think about this. If Sarah had come to Abraham and said, hey, I had this really weird feeling that we're going to have a baby. I know we're 100 years old, but it's, I think it's going to happen. It would have been illogical and foolish for Abraham to have faith in that, right? Because none of the outside circumstances make any sense. That's illogical. It's unintelligent to believe in faith from that. But when God says it to him, it's not foolish. In fact, it would have been foolish for him not to believe it. See, when Daniel walks into the lion's den, he does it because God told him to. Not because one of his buddies, right, that they survived the fire together. They weren't like, hey, we thought it would be a really good idea. I know we survived the fire, but now let's, let's go into the lion's den. Let's just keep putting this thing to the test and see how far we can go. Daniel does it, and it's not foolish because God told him to. Not because someone else did. So Abraham has faith in something he knows to be real. And even though, from his outside perspective, even though he's looking at his age and he's looking at his wife and he's looking at all the things around him, it might seem foolish to believe it. He believes it. Why? Because the one who promised it is worth believing. Because he can do anything. So we have faith in the impossible only when God tells us to. Only when it's God who is the one who is doing it. Now, we get some statements here. And these are the things that for me were the most problematic. I think it starts in verse 18. Not problematic. I just, I had a hard time understanding them. Let's put it this way. Verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of, his, of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So some of that makes sense, and some of it doesn't, right? If we go back, let's, let's go back to Genesis and look. Because these are some strong statements about Abraham. And when we look at the story of Genesis, and we look at what Abraham did, it's, at best, it's confusing. 15, 1 to 6, Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him, he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what do we see here and what do we don't see? I think it's really important to recognize what we see and what we don't. So what do we see? God promises Abram that you will have a son, right? Your very own son will be your heir, not Eleazar of Damascus, not some other guy, but your son. Now, does he promise to Abraham that it will come from Sarah? No. But anyone who understands marriage the way God does would make this assumption, right? It's not that God needed to spell this out for him, for him to know that. And the only reason I say that is because it was completely cultural, culturally normal for if a man had a barren wife to take another wife because the only thing that they had was to pass things down from father to son. That was the most important thing in the culture at this time was to make sure you had lots of kids so that you had someone to pass it down to so that your name lived on. That was it, Right? There was no record of what these people were doing necessarily. I mean, Moses doesn't write all of this down for many, many, many years. And so it was common, not right, it was immoral still, but it was common for men to take another wife. So, eh, somewhat important. It doesn't mean that Abraham is in the right, but, it, but we can at least to some degree understand what he's doing. Now, if we look over in chapter 16 of Genesis 1 to 3. <laughs> Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai sent <clears throat> to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and so, Abram, so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now we have to like piece all of these things together. This is really important, right? So does Sarah have faith that is unwavering? What did she say in verse 2? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now you would suppose that Abram had told her this promise that God had made, right? Hey, wife, I had this conversation. I said, look, my heir is going to be Eleazar, and God promised me that we would have descendants more numerous than the stars. Can you believe that? And she said, nope. <laughs> right? I mean, she, 
Nope, I don't believe it, right? It's right here. I'm not making this up. She said this to her husband after Abram said to her, you, God has promised us descendants. Paul says that Abraham never doubted. He never doubted his own ability, even though his body is dead. And verse 19, I believe, right? He never even considered, this is verse 19, He did not weaken in the faith when he had considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So Abraham didn't believe this. Sarah says, God won't let me have kids. Paul says that Abraham did not believe that. So what in the world is going on here? Abraham is still in sin in what he does here, but it's not from a lack of faith. Maybe it's a lack of patience. Maybe it's lust. I don't know. We don't know why he did this. What we do know is that when we look at these two passages side by side, what we do know is that Abraham did not lack faith. Now, when we read 16, we want to think that he did, right? And here's the thing. Let me just, this is like a blanket overall statement. When you read two stories in the Bible and you don't understand how they fit together and you look at them and you say, there's a contradiction here. This doesn't make sense. We are the ones who don't understand. It's not that the Bible is, is spelling out two different stories or that the Bible is giving us a contradiction. It's that our brains don't have enough information to understand. That's why, I, this, that's the whole reason for doing this, right? Is that when I read this, I thought, wait a minute. Abraham seems to be lacking a lot of faith. Why is he taking on more wives if he believes that God is going to give him children through Sarah? What's going on? He must not have faith. But then Paul tells me he doesn't lack any faith. So then I'm wrong. How do I make sense of this? Right? What do we do? Well, in this case, we have to speculate a little bit. I don't know. Probably the lack of patience. Maybe a little bit of lust. I don't know. I'll tell you this. Men, no matter what your wife tells you, no matter what she brings to you, never, ever, ever go down this kind of a path. You see, Abraham might have been, well, she, she suggested it. That doesn't make it okay. He's the one who's supposed to be standing in faith. You, you realize how many times in the Old Testament that men do not stand up and do what they're supposed to do. The very first sin comes out of this. Adam's just standing by, allowing his wife to do the thing that God said not to do. And then when Sarah says to Abraham, God will not allow me to have children, what does he do? He doesn't say a word. He should have gone to his wife and said, Sarah, that's not true. God promised this to us. He's going to make it happen. He had a chance here to stand up and do what is right, and he doesn't do it. If you're still in Genesis, look at the consequences of this. You probably have never noticed. I remember learning this in seminary and just being floored by this. You see, not only does he take another woman into his bed, which he should have never done, he sells his wife off two different times and look at the end of their lives. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. This is Genesis again, sorry. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Oh, I'm sorry, this is, so let's take a step back. God promised him a son. Abraham goes about it in the wrong way. I mentioned this last week. This is really important. Um, 
Ishmael, by all biological measures, is Abraham's son. But does God consider him in such a way? To some degree, right? He says, look, the promises that I made to your offspring apply to Ishmael. But then when we get to this point in chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abram, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. This is how God speaks of Abraham's sons. You see, it wasn't okay for Abraham to do what he did. God looks at this, calls it a mistake, and he says, this is the son in which I promised you. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Now, what's really interesting, once again, is the product of all of this. You see, at the end of their lives, if you stay in chapter 22, look at verse 19. It's really subtle, and there's not a whole lot of emphasis on this. Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So that's where he lives. Chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn Sarah and weep for her. You see, the product of his sin means that these two people live in separate cities. She dies in a different place than where Abraham lives. You see, here's the thing. Abraham made a colossal mistake, right? And God forgives him for that. But I don't think that Sarah ever did. She lives somewhere different. She dies somewhere different. And it's really, really important for us to recognize that our lack of patience, right, that our going outside of God's will, outside of his direction, we might be able to be forgiven by God, which is an amazing thing. But it destroys relationships. Sin has consequences, right? This is not something I relish necessarily talking about, but I know it's a problem in the world that we live in, and I know it's a problem amongst both wives and husbands, so here it is. If you're here this morning, and you're following in these footsteps of Abraham, if you're allowing your heart to try and be given to another person outside of your marriage, if adultery is something that you are, are tempted with, if it's something that you're struggling with, if it's something that you fantasize about or that you think about on a regular basis, I'm telling you this morning, it will destroy your family. It will not do anything good for you. The promises that Satan puts in front of you, this will be good, you'll find love somewhere else, are a lie. Don't listen to them. As C.S. Lewis talks about in, in The Great Divorce, right, this, the, one of his characters, he's got a little devil on his shoulder, and he's having this conversation, and the devil is whispering in his ears, and the angel comes to him and says, we have to kill that thing. And the person from hell is like, well, let's just, let me just, I'll put him in a box. I'll just, I'll put him away. I'll silence him for now. It'll be fine. And the angel says, no, that's not acceptable. You have to kill it. If that temptation is rolling through your mind ever, kill it. Don't just say, oh, just, can you please just stop, be quiet, this is not a good time, I don't want to think about this, but put it to death. Put that temptation, put that sin to death today. It will do nothing but destroy you. I think it destroyed Abraham and his family. He had faith, and God forgave him, 
but women, could you forgive him? And that would be extremely, extremely difficult. And this forgiveness that God gave to Abraham applies to us. This is what the last couple of verses here in this section talk about. Verse 22, Romans 4, we're back in Romans 4, sorry, I know we're going all over the place. Romans 4, verses 22, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. You see, Paul talks a lot about Abraham and about his faith. And the point that he's trying to make is, look, Abraham had faith outside of circumcision, outside of the law. The gospel is not plan B. It wasn't that Abraham had the law and he failed in that and then God sends Jesus, right? It's always been the plan. The reason that, faith, that Abraham is righteous is because of his faith. And that same idea, that same law, that same understanding applies to you and it applies to me. We live outside the law. We live outside any of those covenantal things. They're important, right? We talked about last week, we looked at Exodus, where, ex, where, where Moses doesn't circumcise his son and God is ready to kill him for it. It's not just a flippant thing. Ah, we'll do it if we want, we do it if we won't. Baptism is important. These young folks who stood up here today, this is a command from the Lord when we accept Jesus that we would be baptized. Nothing in the river washed their sins away. Their faith washed their sins away. Their faith is what made them righteous. And yet it's still important. And all of these things are applied to us in the same way that Abraham is justified and called righteous because he believed God we are also named righteous and justified when we believe in the promises of God this is how everyone throughout all of human history has been treated no one has been justified outside of the promises of God and everyone who believes in them is saved from the very first sin, God has been making promises that he is going to do something about the evilness and the sin and the wickedness that has come into our world. And all who believe have been invited to be a part of God's family. We are a completely new creation in Christ. We are declared justified because Jesus was sacrificed for our sins. He was raised for our justifications, right? This is, this is what Paul says at the end of this chapter. Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus does it. These are the promises of God. And so the question this morning is, do you believe it? Not have you done enough good works to earn your way into heaven, because that's nonsense. You haven't. Nobody has. Nobody ever will. The question is, do you believe in the promises of of God. Do you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and that he was raised on the third day? If you do, rejoice. Amen, right? Bring, allow that joy to fill you once again. Because guess what? God calls you his child. He invites you into his household. You are heirs with Christ of this world. That is a responsibility and a, and a glory and, and a gift 
that nothing else, nobody else can offer to us. But if you're here and you don't believe, I implore you right now, repent. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to give you faith. Believe in the promises. They're real. They will do a work in your life that you have never known. Believe in his promises. God will save you. He will save you from yourself. He will save you from your sin. Because it's not about how good you can be. It's not about what good you've done in the past. It's not even about what bad you've done in the past or how bad you are in this moment. God will forgive you no matter what. It's not about that. It's about faith. Believe on God. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. And he is faithful to forgive all who ask. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, we are so grateful for your promises. And we are... Lord, we are even more grateful that we don't have to rely on the promises of men, of false religions, of ideas that say if you knock on enough doors and hand out enough pamphlets and mow enough yards or whatever, Lord, that that's going to be the thing that saves us. Lord, we just, we know that it's not true. Our inner being cries out that we need a Savior, that we need someone to rescue us from ourselves. Lord, you have done that in Christ, in his work. And we are so grateful. Lord, for anyone here this morning, I pray that you open up their eyes to see these promises that they are good and that they are true. Lord, and that you would, there would be faith this morning that they would believe in your name, that there would be repentance and that there would be forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more glorifying than that. There's nothing more glorious for the church than to be able to be a part of and witness And walk alongside those who have confessed a belief and a faith in you. Lord, I pray for these young folks who came this morning. I know we baptized eight. I think there was a few more. Like, Lord, 10, 11, however many of these young guys there were, Lord, that, that we as a church would understand our responsibility to walk alongside them. Lord, to walk alongside their parents, not only disciple these youngsters, but disciple their parents and to be with them and to give them support as they're discipling their kids. What a glorious thing it is to see the faith of these young folks. And Lord, we just pray that this church will be faithful to them and faithful to their families to help disciple them, to help bring them up in the name of the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your promises. Help us to bleed them more. Even for those this morning of us who who do have faith in you, Lord, strengthen that faith. Make it stronger. And praise be to you that our salvation rests in your grace and not in our faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this is what's represented at the table. We come every week because we need to be reminded. Just like we need to be reminded over and over again that it's nothing that we do, it's nothing within us that brings about our salvation. This is the physical representation of that truth, of that promise, that there is a sacrifice that is able to forgive you, that is able to wash away all of your sins, to make you justified. And that is the broken body of Christ and his shed blood, right? That's what's represented at the table. That's why we come every week, because we need to be reminded. And we take joy in that reminder. 
This is what Christ has done for us. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a wonderful thing it is. This is for the people of God. This is for those who are trusting in him. If you have faith in Christ, he wants you to come. He's inviting you to come to his table. But if you're here this morning and you don't have faith, you're not believing in these promises, don't come to the table, but stay where you are. Ask God, repent, ask for forgiveness, and he is faithful to give it. So everything is set. Come forward, grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, and we'll give thanks and partake together.